you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn uh, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Uh, as you're turning there, just uh, let me share a couple of things. Uh, it is, uh, I love being with you. I don't know what all you've been through this week. I don't know what kind of challenges that you have faced and the things that you've encountered. I don't know what you brought in here today. I don't know what kind of baggage you're carrying. Uh, I don't know what kind of hurts and disappointments and struggles and those things. Um, but I have been encouraged this morning to look beyond uh, those things even in my own life and look to Christ, uh, and as we were reminded, to listen to Him and to His Word, uh, and to know that uh, He is who I am not, He is what I am not, and yet because He is all of those things, uh, He is everything and all that I need. Uh, for those maybe who may, may not be used to thinking about God in terms of Christ and we're separating them. This morning when we were reading the Scripture and, and Booney even in our, uh, even our call to worship used uh, Yahweh. That may be foreign to some of you. Uh, that is the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which was the very reason in our second song. Uh, we pointed to that. So when we are talking about God, we're talking about Him, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we recognize the, the greatness of the work uh, in the triune God and what He does and the way He loves and the way He provides grace. Uh, and we see that most especially in the person of Christ, uh, which is why... When we hear Christ's own words, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. That's where we need to be. That's who we worship. Uh, that's why we are here. That's what we were created for. And, uh, and I hope you have a strong sense and have gained a strong sense of that uh, even uh, today already. Uh, I love you and uh, grateful to be able to be here with you. And it's in hearing um, you sing and in joining with you in that uh, that I am reminded again and again each week uh, of the goodness of God in Christ. Uh, so thank you. Uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Begin reading in verse 1. You can follow along. Um, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, a written copy of Scripture, certainly if you have your phone or whatever and have access to it, or sitting next to someone, if you will, follow along. Uh, these are important words. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down 
for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Will you pray with me? Father, will you help us to understand this text in its context and help us to understand it in light of who you are and who we are and what Jesus and his temptations meant and what they say. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, this narrative is familiar uh, to most people who call themselves Christians. Probably most of us in here have heard this. Maybe some have not. And you know, when we read it, it seems simple enough. Uh, it's kind of, we read the story and Jesus was tempted and we may not know all the pieces and parts to it, but we envision somehow or another in our minds what it was like. Uh, I'm reminded of the kind of abbreviated version of this uh, in the Jesus film. Uh, not the whole thing does, isn't laid out, but at least parts of it. And those things kind of shape our thoughts about it. And in most cases, we read Matthew's gospel and we read through this and we just keep reading and we read on. And it's kind of like, okay, I get that. It's easy to understand. It's not like when I get to Revelation or somewhere like that where things begin to be uh, real hard to understand. It's fairly easy to understand. It's only when we stop and look at this text that we are reminded that it is a particularly complex text. Just stop and think about it for just a minute. It's pregnant with meaning and significance, and we don't get that in just reading it and telling the story so much. It's when we really stop and look at it, and that's what we want to do today. We stated last week that we wanted to look at Jesus' baptism, and we wanted to look at the temptations in our study of Matthew, keeping in mind, and this is just so you will understand, and you heard it already as we have read and as we have already been singing today. Uh, Matthew is speaking about a king, and he is speaking about a kingdom. So when we hear Jesus shall reign, when we hear he is worthy, when we talk about worshiping him and him ruling and reigning, we're talking about a king, and we're talking about a kingdom, and that's what Matthew is conveying. And it's in the course of that and through that lens that we are looking here. But our question before us today is just this. What did Jesus' temptation mean, and what does it say? I think for us to understand this, we have to have some context for all that's going on. So we are going to look ahead in the New Testament to establish some context, and we're going to look back in the Old Testament to establish the context that Jesus 
established in this. And we're going to bring this together, hopefully, to be able to understand that. Not just a retelling of the story, but what does this mean? So let's begin. Take your copies of Scripture and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. When you get there, you'll... For those of us who have worked through Hebrews together as we have, we will immediately recognize this text. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Let's read the whole thing and have this kind of as a foundation for us as we look back into Matthew's gospel. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, now listen. We've already, I'm going to make this connection for you so that you'll understand why we have already read what we have read in our service up till now. Remember when Adam was reading our assurance of pardon, when we have again at what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John there, and then God in a, in a cloud speaks from out of the cloud and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard that last week at Jesus' baptism. But there was a caveat. After that, when there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Adam stressed this, the next words were, Listen to Him. Listen to Him. To him. There's things that he will say that are significant and important for life. And even beyond that, it's not just what he said in John 14, 6. We read that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That sums it all up. But there is so much else that he says, and we need to listen to him. Okay? Now, in listening to him, we're hearing the Word of God. So, for the Word of God, in verse 12, we're picking up there, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now that's kind of, we're going we're gonna to see this when we look back in the Old Testament. Verse 14, now listen close. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable. I'm going to pause there just a minute. Notice that that is a double negative. Um, I don't say a lot about the Greek or about the Hebrew. I don't know a lot about it. I've had them, but I don't know a lot about them. But I do know this, that when we start speaking in terms of double negative, we realize that something is being stressed. Okay? So just get that. This is being stressed. We... For we do not have a high priest who is unable. In other words, we have a high priest who's able, in bold, in caps, okay, 
to sympathize with our weakness. But it says in the double negative, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to note verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect that has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now back up just a few pages while you're there in Hebrews and turn back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And you'll recall this because we've not been too long out of Hebrews. Therefore, he, meaning Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So now he is tempted in every respect, but he was made in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Get that. Suffered when tempted. He has been tempted in every respect like as we are. And he was made in such a way, in other words, took on flesh in such a way that he was tempted and suffered in this temptation. And he is able to help those who are tempted. Okay? That's the context. What did you Jesus' temptation mean? It means two things. I think at least we can acknowledge that it was real and it was necessary. And I want you to hold those two things together for just a moment. Okay? If you're taking notes, write real and necessary. And I know some of you like to. We know that this it was real and necessary for his intended work. And we know what that intended work is because, look back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, coming from the angel to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and here's his intended purpose, for he will save his people from their sins. Or to state it in the way that the author of Hebrews did, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now why is this so important? Because when we consider Jesus' temptations and think on it, we immediately begin to wrestle with deep questions about Jesus, about this God-man who is every bit God and every bit man. And when we do, questions begin to surface and questions that are framed like, could Jesus have sinned? Now, I'm not tracking away from the text, but if you don't deal with this on the front end, we will never get what Jesus is, what it means, what his temptations mean and what they say. Could Jesus have sinned? Now, I want you to understand, whichever way we answer this question will shape what we understand and believe about Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. 
And then coming out of that question, there are questions like, well, was he really tempted? Was he really tempted? Because if we answer the first question by saying that he could not sin, then we struggle with saying that he was really tempted. That's the way we think, isn't it? If he couldn't sin, then he wasn't really tempted. You see the complexity here of this narrative and the weight that it carries? So could Christ have sinned? We hear that he was tempted in every respect like us. That's the framework. That's the foundation. We want to know what it means. Well, we're looking at it from from the author of Hebrews. We hear that he was tempted in every respect like us, like we are. So that certainly means that he had to have been able to sin, right? Well, actually, the answer is not that simple. You don't get there with that kind of logic. We know that he could not have sinned. How do we know that? Because of his nature. He's God. See, when we say something about God, the triune God, we are saying that about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It seems, may seem a bit deep, but you've got to get this piece of it. It makes a difference. It really makes a difference. So when we say that God is righteous and holy, we are saying that Christ is righteous and holy. And when we say that Christ is the incarnation, in other words, Jesus is God incarnate, we are saying that Christ is human. He was, and He's God, and He was, and He is, and remains that way. He took on flesh and all that it meant. But remember that we repeat this often, and we do this for a reason. And here's what you hear us say. We say it regularly. We are sons of Adam. Christ wasn't. Christ wasn't. This is why even Matthew stressed the conversation between the angel and Joseph when we were looking at chapter 1. Do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We have, a lot of times, we will connect our sinfulness and our humanity together. And in some ways we can do that, but not in every way. Okay? You get that? We can connect them in some ways, but not in every way. And here is how we cannot connect them. Is that when man was created, when Adam and Eve were created, when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, when he took the rib from Adam and he made Eve, they were human in the likeness of God. They were human. But what were they not at that time? They were not sinful. So in every respect, we can't say to be human is to be sinful. No. There is the human nature, there is humanity, and it has known a time, our race, humanity, has known a time when there was no sin. We need to hold on to that. 
at creation, the human didn't mean being sinful. So when Christ took on flesh, he didn't assume the sin nature that every person since Adam's fall in the garden has assumed. He didn't take that on because he wasn't a son of Adam. What he did take on was everything that was human. All the human characteristics. He was hungry. He was sad. He was joyful. He had the ability to think and feel. He had emotions. It's important to understand that his inability to sin, his impeccability, had no bearing on him being tempted. Here's why. Temptation as we know it is both internally driven and externally driven. Okay? What does that mean? Well, it means that temptation has an internal force and it has an external force. Some of you may be familiar with uh, John Owen. He was a 17th century Puritan. Uh, he put it this way, and it's really helpful. He said, temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that upon any account whatever has a force to effect or to seduce or to draw the mind and the heart of a man from his obedience, which God requires of him into any sin and any degree of that sin whatever. And then he goes on and says this. And he says, the things, the states, the ways, the conditions which attempt to steer the mind toward wickedness and their source are thus, and here, and you may want to jot these down, these are helpful. Satan alone, the tempter, Satan alone, the world at Satan's disposal, and we know that he has authority. We see this in our text, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, that he has authority and he has power that God has granted him, okay? The sinful cravings of the human heart, which are there by our sin nature, by our fallen state, or some combination of the above. Okay? I'll just repeat that. Temptation is, can come outwardly from Satan alone, things coming from the authority and power that Satan has in the world at his disposal, our own fallen nature as it applies to us who are fallen by virtue of being sons and daughters of Adam uh, or any combination of those. So Jesus could be tempted by Satan without being drawn inwardly or without his will being corrupted. You get that? The point is, is that Jesus was never at a place where he disregarded the will of the Father because his will was not bent toward anyone other than the Father, but it does not negate the outward temptation that he had where he was bombarded by Satan. His will was never bent toward sin, but he faced the fiercest, mind you, more than you and I have ever faced, more than you and I will ever face, the fiercest outward temptation. So the temptation of Jesus was real. 
But it's also necessary. Necessary. Why do we say that? Well, we heard that he had to be made like his brothers. Why? So that he could undergo temptation and therefore represent, okay, represent his people and make propitiation for their sin. That is to satisfy the wrath of God. That's the reason that we sang just a moment ago that in him he has, he has removed all condemnation. Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Qualified for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the point. Here is how his temptation fits into this piece. And this is what we want to look at. His temptations are pointing to the fact that he relived, recapitulated, if you will, just went back through the same things that Israel went through. What does that mean is that his life as a whole, but especially the events surrounding his temptations, repeated what had taken place in Israel's life and in Adam's life. It was necessary. And we'll just briefly mention the contrast with Adam for just a minute because Jesus points back more to Israel. You may want to write these contrasts down. The events kind of surrounding Adam and his temptation, that took place in the garden. Jesus was in a wilderness. Adam had access to all the food that he could eat. He was well fed. Jesus was hungry. In fact, Jesus wasn't just hungry. Jesus was on the borderline of being in a critical place with his hunger. Those of you who are connected with medicine and know something about medicine know that human body can go three or four days without water before it starts breaking down. If it has water, it can go about 40 days before irreparable damage starts to take place in the body. Well, Jesus had gone 40 days without, without food. Adam had no frame of reference of sin. He had no memory of sin. Adam had known, knew nothing of sin. The only thing that he had been told was God's command, but he had no framework for sin. Jesus, on the other hand, while he had not sinned, had sin all around him. He knew of sin. In fact, I was thinking about that very thing. Uh, Jesus had witnessed the rebellion in heaven, Satan's own rebellion in heaven. He had witnessed that because it had been against him. He had seen Adam's fall. He'd seen Abel murdered. And then think about every other sin and to think that he was in a world coming to save his people from their sin. He knew all about sin without ever having experienced sin himself, without ever having sinned himself. But Adam knew none of that. And Adam rebelled against God and brought a curse on every one of his descendants for all of time. And if you're familiar with Romans chapter 5, if not, I'll just let you look at that on your own. Jesus remained faithful and true to the will and purpose of God and brought redemption to all of those who would trust in Him. Isn't that wonderful? Adam rebelled and it all fell under a curse. Jesus came and was faithful and brought redemption to all those who would trust in Him. 
That's Adam, okay? And that's Jesus. Now, our text point to these things as seen in the recapitulation of Israel. We don't want to miss this. The wilderness experience immediately follows Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, we know that God gave testimony, the Father gave testimony, that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit testifies of the same thing as He descended upon Him like a dove. Now, we don't know what all that looks like. In the picture in the Jesus film, a dove flies down and rests on Jesus' shoulder. We don't know what that looks like. We know, according to John's Gospel, that John knew that to be clearly God. The Spirit of God coming upon him because that is what he based his understanding of who the Christ was. Now I want you to catch this. It is this Spirit who comes upon Jesus, descends upon Him, that leads Jesus into the wilderness. Look at verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit. We move from the Spirit coming upon Him, the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, to the Spirit immediately leading Him into the wilderness for 40-day fast, and leads him into this 40-day fast. This isn't just, oh, I think I'm going to fast 40 days. No, the Spirit led him into this 40-day fast, following his baptism and the public announcement of his identity. For what? For what? Well, it's clear. The Spirit of God is preparing him in his humanity, leading him and preparing him in his humanity to step into this headlong work that will take place that will, in fact, bring about a cosmic resistance and an earthly resistance. What do I mean by cosmic resistance? What do we see going on in this wilderness experience? It is Satan coming with this onslaught of and a force of temptation upon him. I want us to look at that and the recapitulation together through the rest of our time. What does the cosmic resistance look like? Well, let's follow that progression as we look through these next few verses. And the tempter came, in verse 3, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. When we look at the first temptation, we are probably a bit puzzled. I, I know I am. I have been. In fact, for some of us, it, it really doesn't, we read it and it doesn't make any sense. I, I, I know whenever I was young, it didn't make any sense to me. We see that Satan tempts Jesus to turn the stones into bread, but our first thought is, how can this be wrong? Here's a hungry man. It's not like he's tempting him to go and, and steal bread out of someone's windowsill like we see in the movies and on television, 
where the hungry person goes and takes the pie out of the lady's windowsill where she has just made it and put it out there to cool. It's not like he tempts him to go and rob the, the corner market and take a loaf of bread because he's hungry. And even with us, and a lot of times in our settings, we would, we would almost justify that. He's hungry. He has nothing. He has no means. That's not what he's tempting him to do. So why is this such a serious matter? Well, Jesus' response tells us why it's serious. We look at it. We don't recognize the seriousness of it. Jesus responds, and we see the seriousness of it. He says, look, in verse 4, it is written. So there's something, there is something objective to look at to guide him and to guide us regarding the seriousness of this. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is clear as to what is at stake here. But we can't understand that if we don't understand what he points to. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we need to find our context in Deuteronomy. What is happening here in Deuteronomy is that Israel is at the end of her 40 years of wilderness experience. Moses is preparing those who have survived, and that is those who were under, was it 20 or so? Can't remember the exact age now, but those who were under a certain age and all their parents have died, their grandparents have died. Some of these that he is addressing, some of those that he's addressing are, are those that came that were children who came out of Egypt, children coming out of Egypt. And some of them certainly have been born during that 40 years, and there's a whole other generation of people there. But he's addressing them, and he's pointing back to their wilderness experience and what it means for them as they move forward in going into this promised land which is a promised land, but is also pointing to a life and a purpose that God has had for them that stands in the framework of His plan of redemption. And there in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we hear things like, beginning in verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. In other words, Moses is pointing back to that. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now notice, God has sworn something. He has made a promise. And this is going to be huge throughout the rest of everything that Jesus has to say. Not just here, but every time he addresses Satan, he's pointing back, it is written, it is written, God has promised, God has said. Okay? He said, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that you would keep His commandments or not and be humbled and He humbled you and let your hunger, okay, and let your hunger, let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every 
word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I won't read the rest of the chapter, but I would encourage you to go home and read the rest of chapter 8. The point is, is that Jesus points back to this because he is reliving, going back through this experience again. Moses recalls the past 40 years, what they mean in relation. And then he says, and he has delivered you from Egypt. He has fed you. But more than needing bread, they needed God. I want you to think about that for just a moment. More than needing bread, they needed God. Physically, to live and to survive, we need bread. But there is a whole other realm that Jesus is pointing to that is at stake in this temptation as it applies to Him as it relates to us and all of those who would trust Christ. The point that Jesus was making when He responded in this way was, yes, I am the Son of God. But my purpose in being here is not to make things easier for myself. I want you to hear that because this is, this is going, this is getting down to where things are. Not to make things easier for myself, but to deny myself that I may fulfill the purpose of God. We admit on the surface turning stones into bread doesn't seem like a big deal. But if we relate that to the underlying temptation to not desire self and not rely on the Word of God and His purpose and what He has spoken about Jesus and then ultimately again about us, then the self-denial necessary to go to the cross goes away. You get that? And Jesus knew that. Jesus could not and would not deny the purpose and the power of His incarnation. He would not and could not turn to making things easier for Him and using His power to make things easier for Him because what He had to do ultimately was to go to the cross and it was going to require denying Himself. There are two things that we need to hold on to here. First, Jesus was faithful where Adam and Israel and you and me, where we, where we have failed. But isn't it interesting that a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, this thing comes up again in chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. And I want you to hear this because this is huge. The point is made here. Jesus makes the point here. And then Jesus himself then tells his disciples, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was at a critical point in his life, health-wise, 
even there in the wilderness, having gone 40 days without food, feeling everything that a human being would feel in sense, going 40 days without food. And then he points back, I will not, not deny myself because what God has said about my purpose requires self-denial. If you follow me, know that it is a life of self-denial. Now the level of the temptation then is stepped up a notch. This time, Satan comes to him with God's word. So let's hear what he says. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan says it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is Satan doing? Well, he points back to Psalm 91. In other words, he's reaching back into the Old Testament text and bringing it front and center. Read Psalm 91. But what Satan was tempting him to do was to get Jesus to appeal to God to prove his faithfulness to him. In other words, prove your love for me. Prove your faithfulness. I believe it's D.A. Carson who said this, that this is an attack on the sanity of faith. What does that mean? Well, faith says, God, I trust you and your word. And I follow you in obedience to that. I follow you in obedience to that. I'm not reaching in your word to get you to prove yourself to me. I'm reaching in your word to see how I am supposed to move forward in obedience to honor you. Jumping off the pinnacle of the temple was not in the realm of being obedient. Jumping off the pinnacle of the temple had nothing to do with Christ's purpose. Jumping off the pinnacle of the temple would have been nothing more than just a spectacle. And Jesus said, "Mm -mm. I'm not going to be presumptuous. Not that I don't think God could do it. It has nothing to do with what I'm about. It has nothing to do with His purpose in my life. You see, presumption twists the Word of God for personal advantage. I'm not going to say a whole lot. I'm just going to say this. If you will listen to prosperity gospel preachers and teachers, they twist God's Word to find personal advantage. It's presumption. It's not faith. It's foolishness. It's what it is. How did this strike at the identity of the incarnation? It was asking God to prove that He really cared for His Son. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. If God, this, is, this, would, be the, this would be logical in, in our understanding, if God really cared about Jesus, what would He not do? Human logic would tell us what? 
He would never let him go to the cross and be despised. He would never let him be tortured. He would never let him die. If he really loved his son, that's flawed logic in that sense because we're thinking with the minds of humans. And that's what exactly what Satan was trying to do. That's the reason this temptation was so great toward the humanity of Christ. Because everything about it would point. Let's get God to prove that He loves us and cares about us. Isn't that what we do when we put out fleeces and ask for signs and we barter with God? We're asking God to prove that He loves us? The problem is Jesus was going to face the full weight of God's wrath, would not, which would not necessarily in human logic equate to Him loving. But if He began to call on the Father to prove His love for Him, this would mean that He would be willing to set aside God's purpose and the redemption that was to come. And in eternity past, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had determined this plan of redemption. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, because Jesus points back there. Hold your place there in Matthew, and I'll read it, and then we'll look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6. There in verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, take note, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 13. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. Now flip over to Exodus chapter 17 and you will find out what He's referring to. So Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandments of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? And here's what came out of that. Look on down. In verse 3, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? And our children and our livestock with thirst. Moses cried to the Lord. They quarreled against Moses, ultimately quarreling against God, and said, God, you brought us out here to kill us. Prove your love. Give us water. Prove your love and give us water. Israel failed to trust in God. Now think about it for just a minute. Was God going to come and call them His people, deliver them out of Egypt, point them to the land that He had promised, and they knew of this promise, and Moses reminded them of them, only to bring them into the wilderness and let them die and let them thirst to death. 
Well, the answer to that was, was no, he isn't any more than he's going to lead you or me or anyone else out to do something and then leave us stranded. He's not going to do it. Jesus didn't fail. In Satan's final temptation for this time, he tempts Jesus to break the first commandment. Look back over in verse 8. Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Fall down and worship me. Satan is saying, worship me. Don't worship God. Worship me. Don't worship God. And this is what I'll give you. We've already said we don't know all that God gives Satan in the way of authority. But we know whatever authority, whatever power he has, God has given it to him. Satan, it seems here to me, is ultimately offering Jesus a crown, a throne, a reign that didn't include suffering. In other words, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. You rule them, you reign them, you've got it. And it seems that Satan can give that. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, oh, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to do that. That's not what, that's not what Jesus says, is it? What does he say to him? Then Jesus said, then Jesus said to him, all yeah, all these, I, he said, it, excuse me, in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In other words, you may can give me that. He didn't deny that. What he said was, is that we're to worship God only. Isn't it interesting how this parallels with Eve's temptation? Satan came to Eve and tempted him, tempted her to give her knowledge that she didn't have. And you know what? She sinned and you know what happened? She got knowledge she didn't have. She did. She got exactly what he had promised. What he didn't tell her was is that this knowledge was not consistent with what God had for her wasn't good was never going to be good was never going to be fulfilling it was not going to grant her the kingdom and the reign that God intended for her Eve failed Adam failed Israel failed and we've acknowledged even today can't we can you? We failed. I failed. Have you? At the heart of all of our sin is the breaking of the first commandment. That's the reason that it's first. And once we have established another God, all the other things will come. When we confuse worldly riches for spiritual riches, we worship another God. When we assert our own self-sufficient, we, we have established an altar to another God. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? 
Jesus said to worship God only. What does the temptation of Jesus say? It says, Jesus was tempted in every respect like Adam, like Israel, and like we are. It says we all failed, but it says he did not fail. And because he didn't fail, he was able and is able to propitiate for our sin and impute to us a righteousness that gives us life. And here's the key. And gives us, those who trust in him, entrance into a kingdom where he rules and reigns. So, as the author of Hebrews said, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and grant us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's heavy. It's tremendously heavy. But you know what it does? For those who trust in Him, it takes the weight of sin off of us. And it was placed on Him. And along with that sin, this is what else was placed on Him. The wrath of God that by God's grace, I will never know. And if you've trusted in Him, you will never know. And if you haven't trusted in Him, please trust in Him so that you will not know the weight of that wrath. Please. Please trust Him.